Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Step right up, step right up. I am Dr. H. H. Nutmeister visiting your fine frontier town for one day and one day only. I've studied on eight continents. I've braved the terrible swamps of Mendora to bring back the miracle route they call Peruna. In San Lorenzo, I obtained a nerve syrup that cures St. Vitus dance and prostration. I was summoned by the Silesian king to treat his son for softening of the brain and loss of manhood, which I remedied with gentian infusions. You, sir, don't be shy. Step right up so I can treat your hideous deformity. Uh, actually, I don't have a deformity. I'm fine. Of course you're not. I detected a hitch in your get-along. You suffer from hysterical chillblains, or I'm a Mongolian dromedary. It's true that I have a little bit of arthritis in this knee, but these remedies of yours sound like snake oil. And right you are. Snake oil is just the thing for a sad case like yours. And I'm not talking about those proprietary snake oils like Dr. Tyree's tonic that lose their potency on the shelf. No, sorry. I'm talking about fresh snake oil made on the spot. You take a step back there, son. Behold, I remove from the bag a Tortuga Island diamond rattlesnake, a beast of great ferocity. I place it here in the steam press and pull the lever. And out from underneath my contraption trickles snake oil. Swallow it down while it's fresh and good, my man. And then step over and hand my assistant Injun Joe some currency in the amount of $20. Really? If I drink this, my arthritis will be gone? Well, let us just say that you will never be heard to complain again. While he's drinking that down, ladies and gentlemen, I invite you to behold yet another miracle. Sound which is conducted through the waves of the air. The speaking voice of a man you cannot see. And now the spokesman for Platt's Chlorides, a sponge bath for the insides, Colin McEnroe. Actually, I'm no longer a spokesman for Platt's Chlorides. Uh, it just didn't work out. Uh, I think Selma Hayek is another spokesperson, but I'm not, I'm not 100% sure about that either. So we're going to talk today about, about quackery, but also about the way in which certain things kind of hover on that knife's edge between... Uh, quackery and, and accepted medicine, uh, as you may have heard me say before the news. Uh, I, you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, a journalist friend of mine did a lengthy investigation of acupuncture, at the end of which he concluded that there was absolutely nothing, there was nothing to it, it had absolutely no usefulness or any benefit. Well, you can walk into almost any hospital today and get acupuncture. They're usually over the integrative medicine uh, department, uh, and I just was on the Mayo Clinic website this morning and reading all about acupuncture. So things do change a little bit. Uh, our attitudes do change, but, but we're also just surrounded all the time. Time, as we have been, as our guests today will tell you, as we have been pretty much from the moment there was something that was identifiably accepted medicine, there there was almost immediately um, 
un, uh, sort of an unacceptable medicine. Uh, so we're going to talk about both of those things. Our guests today include Erica Janik, uh, a historian, writer, and executive producer of Wisconsin Life at Wisconsin Public Radio. She's the author of Marketplace of the Marvelous, The Strange Origins of Modern Medicine. Uh, and Dr. Eric Boyle, he'll be joining us by phone from Maryland. He's a medical expert and historian at the National Institute of Health. He is the author of Quack Medicine, A History of Combating Health Fraud in the in 20th Century America. And joining us uh, now from the Yale studio is Dr. Stephen Novella. Uh, he is a neurologist and assistant professor at Yale University Medical School, well known for his involvement in the scientific skepticism movement. He's also a senior fellow for the James Randi Educational Foundation, where he directs their science-based medicine program. So, Dr. Novella, I'm going to begin with you. Um, we're surrounded all the time now by just, you know, a lot of information about things that sound very promising, but are for the most part not sanctioned by the doctor that we go see, the doctor who's covered by our insurance. And so we turn on the TV, TV and there's Dr. Oz, who celebratedly is talking about milk thistle and some new holy grail for weight loss called Garcinia Cambogia. Um, we read that Steve Jobs treated his pancreatic cancer differently for a while, may have uh, used uh, a special kind of diet uh, and uh, delayed surgery for that reason. Uh, we're reading now that the FDA is revisiting the question of how to regulate homeopathic uh, and, and similar treatments. Um, if you're a basketball fan, you might know that Seth Davis's mother, Seth Davis is a CBS basketball analyst, son of Lanny Davis. His mother uh, markets a whole bunch of uh, uh, sort of, you know, unsanctioned ionized water and alkaline water that she thinks or says helped her cure her own stage four cancer. There's stuff like this all the time. So, um, the, Dr. Novella, we're kind of wired for hope, right? We're, we kind we want to believe, particularly if we're not getting the kind of help we think we should get from conventional medicine, we're kind of wired to believe that there's something else out there, something else that might really help how how do we make discernments? Do we just trust our doctor and 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 assume that all this other stuff that we hear about is nonsense? Well, it's it's really difficult. I mean, I won't pretend that it's easy to filter through all of the information out there, especially now with the internet. I mean, people are overwhelmed with information. And there's no substitute, I think, for being one, having a basic level of scientific literacy. So you at least could give this the sniff test, as we say, to claims. Does it even make basic scientific sense or is it just magic? And also some basic critical thinking skills. So you could you know, be a an informed and a discriminating consumer. I mean, right? We we kick the tires before we buy a used car. Wouldn't you want to have some basic information about a treatment before you uh, before you buy it? Before you subject your health to it. So uh, I was even so today I was just sort of I just I decided to kind of let myself float along like like plankton on the internet. I started at one of these websites and clicked through to some link on another one and read some comments on yet another one and uh, and I wound up on a comment thread. Uh, where I read this. My good friend had a very aggressive malignant brain tumor removed almost three years ago this coming November. The surgeon was not able to remove it completely or she would have stroked. However, her neurosurgeon gave her no hope. That's in capital letters. She was offered radiation, but he said that she would live no longer than three years. Well, she chose nutrition, uh, but she also drinks water that is generated with Colgen 2, 
uh, trademark symbol. She is a chemist and knows about science, uh, and she also knew that the government uses this particular generator at NASA. The nano silver water cannot be patented because, like oranges, it's natural. She has no neurological deficits, and her tumor is gone! Exclamation point, exclamation, uh, exclamation yeah. point, and, and on and on. Now, you've read a million accounts like this, but if I were a cancer patient who hadn't really been given much hope by my physician, by my oncologist, I might be looking at this and say, thinking, well, what have I got to lose? Yeah, so uh, my first advice to anybody reading stuff like that on the internet is to completely ignore any anecdotal evidence like that, any testimonials. They are far more likely to be misleading, and they may be deliberately misleading. I mean, it sounds like you were giving the implication there that maybe this is somebody with a vested interest in selling this product, but even if they're sincere, that's not enough. Anecdotes like this are completely misleading. We just don't have enough information to know why that person got better what their real diagnosis was, what other treatments may have been involved. And of course, people who die aren't around to give their testimonials. So how many people took the alkalinized water or whatever the magic water is and are no longer around to give their testimonial? Or it just didn't work, so they went on to the next thing. Nobody's going to spend any time telling the world about the treatment they tried that didn't work. So it's massively biased. The only way to really sort through these kinds of questions is with careful observation, what we call science. You know, we do clinical studies so that we could count every person who tried something and we can control for all the variables and know as best as we could know anything if it actually works or not. Um, Erica Janik, um, the, the um, process that he's describing right now sounds ideal. But, but is, it the, is it the whole history of medicine or does medicine sometimes evolve because people almost at a folk level start trying something and maybe it works and, and then talk to other people and spread it around and then ultimately it gets tested? I mean, is, it, is medical scientific progress always as orderly as Dr. Novella would like it to be? I think we all would like it to be that way, yeah. but that just definitely is not the case, and that's certainly not the case in its history. I think a lot of people, particularly in the 19th century, were trying all kinds of things, and the fact that they were trying them and, you know, this kind of anecdotal testimonial evidence that it worked um, did lead to people actually doing more rigorous scientific testing of these remedies. And, you know, maybe people were doing things that were crazy and didn't work at all, but they did raise questions and push forward issues that, that I did think that I do think had has had a very um, positive impact on medicine. Is it, is it possible to draw a bright line uh, at the point where there was something that we could call canonical accepted medicine and on the other side of that line, alternative treatments ranging from potentially useless, useful or, or not terribly harmful to out-and-out out quackery? Well, I think you find with the, with the discovery of germs in the late 19th century, as medicine starts moving into the lab, into a hospital, um, this is really a, a time when medicine starts to change. It's when mainstream medicine starts to change, too. Mainstream medicine really looked nothing um, like it did in the early 20th century as it did in the early 19th century. They were doing co completely different things. Um, and so I think that's kind of a, a reckoning period in kind of the early 20th century where, where a lot of the alternative therapies that were very popular in the 19th century had medical schools, had thousands of followers, um, you, you find them start to kind of die down. Um, you know, they're trying to figure out how to incorporate this new science as it becomes more accepted. But it's actually, it takes a very long time for even American doctors to accept that the germ theory of disease is actually right. They're very skeptical of it. They don't, they're not 
quite sure that it's that it's true and accurate. There's some of that skepticism came from the fact that it that it was discovered in Europe. Um, people were like, I don't know about those Europeans. Um, and so it, it really did take some time before even American mainstream doctors accepted some of these things. So, you know, it's, it's not like one day we figured out that germs cause disease and then all of medicine changed. It really was a kind of a snowball effect. Um, and, and Dr. Novella, uh, to that point, you know, you've sort of heard me refer to this uh, a couple of times now, but I, I, uh, attitudes evolve. And so, I mean, really, 15 or 20 years ago, I, most hospitals did not have a Department of Integrative Medicine. Most of the ones around where I'm sitting right now do have a Department of Integrative Medicine. And that department may include a whole bunch of things that probably really would have been rejected as quackery even 20 or 25 years ago. And acupuncture, I, I would assume, tops that list. So what's your take on that? In other words, is that science loosening up its standards and allowing in things of dubious value? Or is it science evolving to say, well, maybe there's some things that we hadn't really figured out all that well? Oh, I think it's very much the latter. It's it's marketing. Uh, the science hasn't changed on a lot of these things. Like you mentioned acupuncture. There's, there's, it's not as if there's new evidence which made us reconsider our opinion on whether or not acupuncture is effective. In fact, we have been doing more, more rigorous, better controlled studies of acupuncture, which all, all fairly consistently show that it works for no indication. After thousands of studies, acupuncture has not been demonstrated to work. What has changed is, as you say, a loosening of the standards. In fact, more than a loosening of the standards, the carving out of a very specific double standard, the whole label of complementary alternative now integrative medicine is all about creating this double standard where anything goes where the the rules of science can be loosened they're specifically advocating for changing the rules of science to allow in weaker forms of evidence that could prove whatever they want it to prove rather than really trying to figure out what actually works and what doesn't work this is a triumph of marketing over science and reason um do you see for example the fact that the fda is revisiting the question of homeopathic cures is that another symptom of of what you're talking about right now or is that just sort of a necessary level of inquiry about stuff that people are going to use anyway. Well, well, it remains to be seen. I'm not sure what, what the FDA really is, what their goal is here. I hope that they're sincere in reconsidering uh, their regulation of homeopathy. Now, homeopathy is pure snake oil. It is water. It is in its, you know, the usual form. There's no active ingredients in there. It's magic from 200 years ago. It can't possibly work. Most people are surprised to find out what homeopathy actually is. Uh, and the FDA didn't, they, although they, they were given the, the, the power to regulate it, homeopathy is, are considered drugs uh, by law in this country, which doesn't make sense, but that's the law. So the FDA has the power to regulate it, and they basically just chose not to because it wasn't that big a deal. It wasn't that big a market, and at least the sugar pills are are directly harmless as long as there's no contaminants in there. So they decided just not to spend their limited resources regulating something that was so small and fringe anyway. Now, it seems as if they're reconsidering it because there's a multi-billion dollar industry selling homeopathic remedies, and they're thinking, hey, maybe we should actually do our job and regulate these things that we are tasked to regulate. 
Um, Erica Janik, I mean, uh, is another part of this, and, and I'm not even sure I want to talk about homeopathy in these terms, although we can, but even going back to these departments of integrative medicine where you can get acupuncture and stuff like this, some of this, I assume, is kind of audience-driven, right? That that people, people are going to do this, uh, people want this, and to a certain degree, hospitals have thought, well, they're, if they're either going to do it, you know, in some strip mall uh, or they're going to do it here. That's definitely true. I mean, people have been using and looking for alternative remedies for centuries. I mean, you find in colonial America, people were practicing all different kinds of medicine that they were, some they were telling their uh, regular doctor about and others they were not telling them about. Um, and so people are doing these things anyways, because, you know, there are gaps in, in what we know. The science does not explain everything. But humans, I don't know, we don't seem to like that. We don't like uncertainty. And, you know, someone that can make a promise to us and, you know, if it doesn't seem to cost all that much and we might be able to treat ourselves, that people are willing to try those things. And so I think it is kind of a recognition that people have always been doing this and they're probably always going to continue to do it. Um, I want to see as we go along here, uh, you can call in at 860-275-7266, but I've got a lot of guests here and a lot of phones in use and stuff like that. It would be even better if you were to tweet us at WNPR Colin, particularly if you're really mad about something that's been said. <laughs> said so far. Definitely tweet us at WNPR Colin on Twitter, or you can email me at Colin, C-O-L-I-N at WNPR.org. But add, add Dr. Eric Boyle to this conversation because something that uh, Dr. Novella just said um, about, um, about homeopathy made me think of another interesting case study that's in your book, something that I hadn't really thought about for a really long time. But if you were going to have like a 1970s theme party, you definitely want to have some Laetrile there, right? Because so Laetrile is this this thing that was really supposed to be this alternative uh, cancer cure. It, I think its big vogue was in the 1970s. And first of all, um, uh, Eric Boyle, just sort of sketch out the Laetrile story for us. Well, the the story begins with this idea that you can get uh, an effective cancer uh, treatment or cure from a natural source, and that is the, the pits of apricots. And so um, it initially begins as, as very much uh, a, you know, a classic fringe um, therapy, and it takes that uh, trajectory of you know, being um, rather easily dismissed and marginalized, and no one really thinks it has any legitimacy. Um, and then as it becomes more and more popular, um, in a lot of ways, the consumer demand for Latril ends up um, requiring a, a kind of reluctant response on the part of regulators and scientists who, in their mind, you know, Latril doesn't work. It's not, you know, worth investing the, the money and resources into, um, you know, demonstrating that. Um, but for the sake of consumer safety um, and for the sake of you know, really tackling this question of whether or not Latril works. Finally, reluctantly, the FDA and, and, and scientists at the NIH get involved, and lo and behold, when they conduct their studies, all the evidence comes back and shows it, in fact, does not work. Um, and the response, um, much as it had been with a lot of therapies in the past, was, uh, you know, patients continue to demand it. And there were people who said it worked for me. I want it for, you know, my friend. Um, and so even though uh, the FDA finally bans the um, 
production and circulation of, of Latrol, it, it, it continues to be something you can get on the Internet to this day. So this is it's a, it's a great case study, I think, for some of the stuff that you're talking about, Dr. Novella, with homeopathy. So uh, in, and in two different ways. One of them is the way that Dr. Boyle is just talking about right now. You've got this thing and, and no self-respecting researcher really wants to study it because everybody in the scientific community thinks it's worthless quackery. Why would I spend years of my life working on a double blind, peer reviewed study of Laetrile when I already know that it's nonsense? But if you don't study it that way, you've really essentially got nothing to say to all those potential clients that Dr. Boyle is describing, right? Well, you can also you can always fall back on plausibility, uh, meaning what's the probability that this thing is going to work? What does the animal data say? What you know? What do we know about it chemically? What is it biologically plausible? That's what we use to determine what's worthwhile studying clinically. And it's it's actually a, an interesting question. Even my colleagues and I debate: Is it worth uh, investing in clinical research in treatments that probably don't work just because they're popular? I think Laetrile gives us an answer to that too. And what we see over and over again. When you do the big study and you show it doesn't work, it doesn't matter because people aren't basing – the people who are advocating it at least aren't basing their opinion on scientific evidence in the first place. So giving them the scientific evidence, spending all the money to acquire it doesn't change their mind. They just write it off as a conspiracy. So you've gotten nowhere. You've, you know, the people who knew it didn't work the, already from the, from the scientific implausibility that, that you confirmed what they suspected – the people who thought it worked, they ignore it. So you've just spun your wheels for millions of dollars and you know, ex- expending lots of scientific uh, resources. Although, uh, and Eric Agenic, I mean, another part of every single one of these stories uh, is that part of the narrative is there's somebody who doesn't want you to have it, right? That, that, the, that the FDA is in bed with people selling more sanctioned kinds of drugs and the AMA is in on it and everybody's in on it. And there's kind of a conspiracy to make sure that you you don't get to know about and you don't get to use this thing, this very natural thing that, that makes a kind of intuitive sense to you. Of course, God would have put something in apricot pits that would help me. That's absolutely true. You know, there's always that sense that, that someone knows something and is trying to keep it back from you. And I think that's, that's something that's played out, you know, in the United States for centuries. And in the 19th century, it was mainstream doctors that were kind of, kind of the villains there against the common man. Um, and I think there's, that's still, um, you know, maybe we wouldn't use exactly those terms today, but I think, you know, there's so much money in medicine um, that a lot of people get skeptical about it. Um, I think with, with money driving so many things in our culture, not just medicine, but all kinds of things that, that people are just aren't sure. It's really hard to sort out, you know, what's actually real from what's not, because it, it does seem like that there's this uh, conspiracy to, to keep this knowledge from you. Well, so, uh, Dr. Eric Boyle, to that end, one of the things that I think is said in your book is that upon subsequent review, one of the things that the FDA or somebody decided was that there was kind of a mistake made by letting Laetrile hang around, so to speak, that you know, it sat around there for a while with people using it. And what the FDA should have done is regulate the crap out of it from the very beginning and, and, and basically try to drive it out of existence rather than have people waste their time, their money, and possibly even lose their lives pursuing a treatment that wasn't as good for them as some of the more beneficial treatments. But doesn't that kind of play into that paranoia? In other words, if you turn into Elliot Ness treating Laetrile like liquor during the Prohibition, aren't you more or less feeding the beast that says, I want this thing, I need this thing, and, and these dark forces are keeping it away from me? Well, I mean, I think it, it partly depends on, you know, 
what position you're in and what responsibilities you have in this in the whole discussion because you know if, if you if you are in the regulatory business then you know this is part of your you know work as as much as it might not be something you want to do it's something that um, you're compelled to do and I think you know part of the part of the problem with um, with suggesting that you know, it's it's not worth investing the resources in studying something that you know already doesn't work. Um, I think, you know, I would suggest it's a mistake in some ways to to argue that everyone already has their mind made up, and no matter what the study says, uh, they're just going to go about their business and do what they want to do. You know, I think there are people who, um, you know, might start out sympathetic to uh, a, a new treatment, especially when it, you know, something comes out and everyone's talking about it and is excited about it and it hasn't really been studied yet. Um, you know, people, people want to know whether or not it really works. And in order, you know, to, to reach that conclusion, you have to go through the dirty work of, you know, conducting the research. And I, and I you know, I, I think it's a valuable and necessary thing. Well, there's, so there's the research, but then Dr. Novella, then there's also the regulation. In other words, one of the things the FDA could do with a lot of this stuff that it thinks is completely worth, worth, worthless is regulate it, try to keep it off the market. Um, and, and, and you sort of alluded to that with, um, with homeopathy. I mean, that's another option, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I I always like research. I have no uh, problem doing the research. It just needs to be tied to regulation so that it gets put to good use. It doesn't get thrown down the hole. You know what I mean? So if we want to study treatments like this, and you know, uh, the other thing is there is again. Let me get back to the double standard. What people don't seem to have a problem with the government and the FDA regulating pharmaceutical companies and regulating drugs and not allowing drugs onto the market unless they've passed a hurdle of safety and effectiveness. I think people expect that the government is protecting them from worthless or harmful substances. They assume that that's already happening. It's only brought up the, the, so the freedom to use these things when the evidence shows they don't work and somebody wants to sell it anyway. Then they go, oh, well, you can't regulate it. You're taking away people's freedoms. No, we're just actually providing some sort of standard. You know, this is all about standards. We want to have at least a reasonable assurance that the substances we're allowing people to sell as medicine are not poisons, that we can make some kind of statistical statements about how to use them and are are they going to be effective, are the claims legitimate. I think people expect that, but they just fall for this double standard in order to sell the snake oil, you know, the, the stuff that isn't backed by evidence. We're going to talk about actual snake oil as we go along here. By the way, the intro, I wrote the intro before I discovered that actually almost everything that was in the intro was actually happened in the 19th century. There were people making snake oil on the spot out of snakes. But um, we have to take a little break here. Before we do this, just so I don't lose this thread, I mean, I'm way overdue for the break. But Ericogenic, it seems to me that one of the other drivers of this, it seems crazy to say it, but it seems to me that one of the other drivers of these things are famous people, you know, and that even if the FDA decides to regulate the crap out of Laetrile or something like that, the next thing that's going to happen is I'm going to read about some movie star or incredibly rich person who has cancer, who went to Mexico to get this because their cancer couldn't be treated in the U.S. And and the, I read this all the time that, you know, and, and I, then I think, well, that person has all the money in the world and all the access to everything that that person could possibly want. And Salma Hayek is wonderful and she uses these cleansing things. And, you know, um, and so so they must know what they're doing, right? I assume that this is a big part of the dynamic, reading about famous people who go and get this stuff. And 
that's absolutely true. And that's, and that's definitely been true again. You know, I think all of this stuff, you know, I can just point back to things that happened you know, two centuries ago. In the 19th century, people could read about how Mark Twain was using alternative remedies, and he would claim that various things worked. Of course, with Mark Twain, it's always hard to tell whether he's telling the truth or not. Um, but, you know, people do put their stock in, in famous people. Um, and I think, I think you're right. People will just keep continuing to use these things because they see that people who can buy the best medicine on earth choose this other kind of remedy. All right. We have to take a break. If you need to cleanse, now's the time to do it. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk some more. It has nothing of value that's not contained in the food you buy at your supermarket. Investigate before you invest in health services or products. Help stamp out quackery. Help stamp out quackery. And we're back. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Stephen Novella, Dr. Eric Boyle, and Erica, Erica Janik uh, about the history of medicine, the history of alternative medicine, and the present and future uh, of remedies that are not medically sanctioned, and some of which may be useless, some of which may even be harmful. Um, we do have a lot of calls coming in here. I'm going to try to get at least a, one of them on the air here. Here's uh, Scott uh, in Manchester. Hi, Scott. You're on the air. How you doing? Good. What's on your mind? Well, I'm listening to your speakers, and I'm just curious offhand how many actual homeopathics they use themselves, you know, first-person experiences. Uh, well, I'm guessing in the case of you, Dr. Novella, none, that you don't use uh, homeopathics. Oh, I don't use it at all, no. I, mean, I know a lot of skeptics have done homeopathic overdoses where they've taken hundreds of homeopathic pills just to show that they do absolutely nothing, although you've got to be sure that they don't have contaminants in them before you do that. So, but that's just another appeal to anecdotal evidence. You know, I, don't, I don't listen to my own personal anecdotal evidence over anyone else's either because that could be just as deceiving. This notion that it quote-unquote worked for me is the ultimate deception. You really don't know. Even with a proven treatment – When I give a patient a treatment and they get better, I don't know that my treatment made them better because it's an N of one. You just can't know statistically. You have to look at it in a controlled way to really know. Um, Let's grab another call here. This is uh, Eric in Hamden. Hi, Eric. You're on the air. Hi. uh, This is a really great subject. Um, uh, Back uh, about a decade ago, I took a class called Wisdom and the Healing Arts, and it was taught by a traditional MD who uh, became a holistic doctor um, again, you know, from from knowing the guy, it was uh, uh, as much anecdotal and his personal um, experiences in life as, as anything else. But um, part of this class that I took, um, he pointed out during the first third of it, the failings of our present so-called Western medicine. Tens of thousands of people die every year, uh, misdiagnosis, uh, poor application of uh uh, you know, prescription drugs, et cetera, et cetera. It, it seems to me that, uh, you know, pointing the finger at, you know, uh, yeah, I just think that there, that there's, you know, we have to examine all of the failings of, of, of all of the systems and, and take a good hard look at what's going on. I can anticipate Dr. Novello's response, but let me go to Erica first about this. So one of the things that he's saying is if, 
medical science, if, if canonical medical science worked perfectly all the time, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? The reason that folk medicine, that alternative medicine, uh, that emergent medicine, whatever we want to call it, the reason it exists is because people aren't happy with what they're getting. That's absolutely true. And that's, and that's been true all along. You know, people, one of the things that people complained about in the 19th century is that their doctors didn't spend enough time with them. And, you know, that's exactly what people say now. But then they would, you know, go and see this alternative practitioner who would spend hours with them. And, you know, maybe it was just that, those, that hours of attention that actually did the healing. But, but it is these holes in medicine that, that leads people to search for solutions elsewhere. Um, you know, I just want to switch uh, tracks a little bit here, um, Dr. Eric Boyle. One of the um, one of the tracks, one of the pathways uh, that we've seen we've seen in the past for some of these sort of alternative cures or whatever is that they start, uh, particularly in the late nineteenth century and bridging into the early twentieth century, they'll start out as kind of remedies, right, or tonics, and then they'll become commercial products. I mean, most of the cola products that we know today kind of emerged out of this idea of vin. Mariani, you know, the coca leaves steeping in wine, Thomas Edison. Talk about celebrity endorsements. Thomas Edison and all kinds of other mighty minds were big fans of this. And from there, you got to all these things like Coca-Cola and Moxie and things like that. And these were originally marketed as having specific health benefits, right? Right. I mean, the, the big shift is, you know, up until, you know, the 1950s, really, for most for most of these products, the the standard position um, by uh, the American Medical Association was any of these products that are marketed directly to consumers um, and make claims of any sort of curative properties or even you know symptom um, uh, treatment, all all of those products that are marketed directly to consumers should be treated as suspect and are likely. Um, you know, quackery. And so um, issuing that kind of, or, or, you know, adopting that kind of uh, blanket opposition to uh, commercial pro- products of that sort ended up um, creating this kind of difficult situation for the medical profession in the 1950s, because that's when really for the first time you have a, a legal delineation between uh, prescription drugs and, and what we now think of as over-the-counter drugs. And um, what happens is, is a lot of the big drug makers uh, who up to that time uh, were um, engaged primarily in developing ph- pharmaceutical drugs, especially in the wake of the big uh, antibiotic revolution of the 40s, get in the business of buying up all these old proprietary uh, companies that were selling these products that had been dismissed uh, for decades by the American Medical Association as uh, bunk. And, and all of a sudden, these are marketed as legitimate over-the-counter remedies um, with the compromise being that no claims are made for curing anything. You're just treating the symptoms. And so you're not really competing with the doctor. You're, um, you know, providing uh, kind of a a physician's assistant of sorts. You know, in in a way, Dr. Novella, what he's describing there at the outset is there's sort of a reversion to that now in, in the sense that these days people do go to their doctors and say, I just I was watching CBS Sunday morning and they were talking about Flomax or I mean there was there are commercials just wall to wall on a lot of these shows that that end with ask your doctor if you might be right for um, and and so we're sort of back to that where the people who make things these are FDA regulated sanctioned things but they're creating a different kind of relationship between the doctor and the patient. 
Yeah, I agree, and that that's that that can be an issue. Though it also does tend to raise public awareness of certain important treatments. But let me address a couple of points that were raised. First of all, sure. it actually isn't true that most people uh, consume or pursue alternative medicine because they're unsatisfied with mainstream medicine. That's what everyone assumes. But if you look at the actual data, there have been multiple surveys where people are asked, what, "Do you you know use alternative medicine? Why do you?" And very few people say because they're unhappy with mainstream medicine. They say that they want to try all. All options, or they they were made open to it by the media, or by an endorsement, or by a friend. They, I think, people just want to be treated, and they don't care what the basis of the treatment is as long as it works. And people like listening to stories because that's very compelling to us. But it's not being driven by dissatisfaction with mainstream medicine. Having said that, obviously, there's lots of problems with mainstream medicine. It's a really big, huge, complicated industry, and there's a lot of things that we need to improve. But just because it's not perfect, that's the nirvana fallacy. Just because it's not perfect doesn't mean we completely throw out the standards or we turn to magic. Okay, all we're saying is we need to have one evidence-based standard of care that applies to everything and not create this double standard where you allow magic and nonsense without holding it to any standard. Um, let me describe a call from Antoinette, who may be one of those people not entirely satisfied with traditional medicine. Hi, you're on the air, Antoinette. Hi, yes, I am. Um, I, I have to say, I, I don't know where this guy gets his information, but homeopathy has been extremely effective for hundreds of years and is very non-invasive and couldn't be more safer than the medications that are prescribed by many doctors that have very deleterious effects. Well, Angela, could, so, you, could you give me a specific example of something that you've used homeopathy for that worked better than conventional medicine? Uh, I could give you several examples. Um, One would there's, be. There's many things that you could take. Uh, what, what is it you, you were looking to help? Oh, no, I, I don't need homeopathy. I'm just, since... But, but, you know, you have a double standard of saying that, you know, just give it a chance to medicine, but you're not giving natural medicine a chance because no, natural I, I medicine was, has been around for many I know. years. But I was just I wondering... where you get your information <laughs> saying that it's... it's, it's Snake oil—that is just ridiculous. Well, I, I, I just we, we haven't even told the story. A very of... arrogant man who knows not what he speaks. Well, um, I, I, but okay. And, and unless you well, try it yourself, really, you shouldn't be putting your your mouth where your your feet are. You really, uh, you know, need to try it and get experience for yourself and see how effective it is before you can go around dissing it and saying how bad it doesn't, you know, work because it's extremely effective and that's why people come to it because it has very minimal invasive side effects. And All right, really we're gonna. I'm, I'm, I don't mean to cut you off here, but you're kind of going on and on and saying the same thing. We sort of get it, but anyway. Uh, all right, so <laughs> well, here's what we should absolutely do. Apropos of Antoinette, anyway, is somebody needs to tell because we the working title we've had for this show for a while is snake oil, and, and I did not realize that. Um, I thought snake oil was sort of a metaphor, but it turns out, uh, Doctor Novell, I don't know whether you want to be the one who uh, tells this story, but th there really was something. There was snake oil that was being sold uh, town to town. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, 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 I mean, there were multiple products that were literal snake oil. That was a, a natural you know, remedy that was very popular in the 19th century. Uh, a lot of – at the same time, that, that meme that's been around for a long time, the idea that things that are natural are magically safe and effective. And all, uh, there was a lot of appeal to traditional cultures you know, back in uh, the 19th century in the U.S. saying that – that Native Americans used this remedy was was a huge marketing effect, and people actually just made up treatments and then then just claimed that it was a, na a Native American treatment. But that was just all part all part of the marketing. But so the snake oil, I mean, they really made something out of snakes, right? I mean, they. 
Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if it was real or not. I mean, but you can, there was no control, regulatory control, to say that what was on the label was what was in the bottle. But you could certainly, you know, find pictures of bottles of of uh, medicines from the 19th century that have snake oil listed as the ingredient or as the the, the title of the medicine. Uh, so that definitely was marketed, and that's where the name snake oil comes from. Um, all right, we're going to grab a quick break here. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit about the placebo effect and other stuff as well in t- as we continue our investigation into mm, quackery. My doctor's a quack. Oh, man. When it comes to medicine, this guy don't know nothing about the field. Doctor's a quack. I'm having a really bad day. My electromagnetic thong is interacting with my ionized water. I'm getting these little shocks, and I don't even want to tell you where. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Sydney Loro. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jenny McCarthy. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff having coffee enemas, actually, no, don't, don't watch that. Visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the past and future of timekeeping. And now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, we are talking about alternative medicine, about quackery, uh, about maybe sort of the gray area um, that may or may not exist at times. Our guests include Dr. Stephen Novella. He's joining us from New Haven's Yale studio. He's a neurologist and assistant professor at Yale University Medical School. Erica Janik is with us from Wisconsin Public Radio. She's the executive producer of Wisconsin Life and the author of Marketplace of the Marvelous, The Strange Origins of Modern Medicine. And uh, Dr. Eric Boyle, he's the author of Quack Medicine, A History of Combating Health Fraud in 20th century America. He's a medical expert and historian uh, at the National Institute of Health. So, um, Erica Janik, one thing that uh, you have observed, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of wasted money uh, in some of these areas, and there are people who put their health at risk either by not using better forms of medicine uh, or by using something that doesn't interact well with the more conventional form of medicine that they're using. Um, But as you look back across the history of this, one point that you've made is that um, it has been a point of entry, if you go back far enough, for people who were excluded from the medical priesthood, specifically women, right? Absolutely. Um, Really, the the first, second, maybe even the third generation of of female professional doctors in the United States came out of these um, alternative or irregular therapies in the 19th century. Um, In part, it was because women were kind of an underserved market. A lot of women um, were... Uh, kind of too embarrassed to go see a male doctor. And even if they did go see a male doctor, propriety often meant that they didn't get treated or examined fully. And so a lot of women were really suffering. Um, And so alternative therapies, all different kinds, really saw women as kind of a a ready market. Um, They really were going after women's health. And one of the ways they thought that they could popularize um, their their theory and their and their treatment was by really welcoming women in, um, and so women were really welcome into homeopathy, hydropathy, um, that's water cures, all, all these different things. They had medical schools. Women could go to these medical schools, could graduate from them, could become you know actual medical doctors, um, and so you find it as a as a really wonderful point of entry for for women to actually have a career in medicine. Um, women weren't allowed to join the American Medical Association until 1915. Um, and, and so it was really an area that was kind of closed to women. 
So, uh, but Dr. Eric Boyle, one of the potential downsides to this was that women were also being envisioned radically differently from men. I mean, we know that men and women are different, but there were all these sort of catch-all problems that they could have, right? Neurasthenia, hysteria. I mean, and, and that's how they wound up at these places where, like Harriet Beecher Stowe, who lived a few feet from where I'm sitting right now, would go to some spa or retreat where she'd be wrapped in incredibly heavy, wet sheets for days on end. Some of this was because there was this sort of idea that that women were congenitally frail in a way that needed remedy. Well, sure. I mean, it's it's and it's not just unique to uh, you know having these uh, alternative therapies or patent medicines of you know the late uh, 1800s and early 1900s being marketed directly to women. You know, this finding that finding a niche market for a condition that is either not effectively treated or ignored by the medical profession is, you know, is widespread and incredibly pervasive at the time. And, and uh, you know, a big part of that market is certainly directed at um, uh, conditions or diseases that uh, were defined along the sexes. And it, it wasn't just women who, um, you know, uh, who had problems identified associated um, along the lines of gender, you know, there were uh, men's problems uh, as well. There were men's specialists and men's clinics um, where predominantly um, uh, venereal disease treatments were administered. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's. I think it's a big part of um, medicine at the fringes throughout history has been, um, you know, speaking to the people who are marginalized in one way or another, whether it be you know opening up opportunity opportunities professionally. Or you know, designing treatments and therapies that um, that uh, are especially for them that that have that kind of personalized feeling or character. Hey, uh, we're running out of time here, Dr. Stephen Novella. I, one thing we haven't really talked about is the placebo effect. So. I have really bad arthritis in both my knees, really bad arthritis in one of my knees. And so I'd be really happy with anything that would make my knee feel better. And so if you put a cup over it and had bees sting it or if you gave me some kind of um, quack cure and my mind tricked me into feeling as though my knee were better, I wouldn't be necessarily unhappy about that. I mean, what do we know about the way the placebo effect kind of dances with all these alternative therapies? Yeah, it's a very complicated question. Placebo effects, you know, plural, there are many different kinds of placebo effects. In a clinical trial, that's anything other than an actual response to an active treatment. And that includes a lot of different things, including the symptoms getting better on their own or just reporting bias. People want to feel that the treatment was working or maybe they're doing other things in addition to the treatment that you're interested in. Uh, we, we have tried to unpack as much as we can what goes into placebo effects. One thing that's been pretty clear is that there isn't any mind over matter real healing taking place, although that's often how the placebo effect is sold, especially for treatments where they only have a placebo effect. It's mainly subjective temporary improvement in symptoms, but not any real physical or physiological healing. Pain is probably the most dramatic example because pain is so distractible, and pretty much anything you could do can distract somebody from their pain, and that will be you know become part of the placebo effect. And that's all fine as long as it's part of reasonable science-based medicine. You're not using it to sell magic or convince people that you can cure their cancer. Um, there is a, a Connecticut connection, right? In uh, the first medical patent in the United States was issued in 1796 to the Connecticut physician Elisha Perkins for medical tractors. And, and uh, Dr. Novella, these were things that the doctor claimed could cure sore joints and other pain. 
Yeah, it's interesting at the time, you know, magnetism was fairly new scientifically, so it was like the sexy new sciencey thing. Uh, and there were hundreds, hundreds of magnetic devices at the time. In fact, uh, it inspired a, a physician, you know, in the 19th century to write a, a comprehensive book, essentially debunking all of the magnetic devices at the times, including those devices. So uh, that's, of course, the, that just like any snake oil or any ineffect, ultimately ineffective treatment, they're being marketed and sold entirely based upon their placebo effects because you can you, with placebo effects you can convince pretty much anybody that anything works uh, that's why it's not discriminating we need to know that there's some actual effect there not just the illusion of an, of an effect um, and, and so dr. Eric Boyle when you when I mean the subtitle of your book is a history of combi- combating health fraud in 20th century America I would assume that one of the challenges is is that situation in which uh, in which the patient is basically saying, well, who am I going to believe? You, you or my own lying knee? My knee actually feels better. <laughs> you know, don't tell me this is health fraud. Right. I mean, the, the, the techniques that have been used predominantly to combat health fraud or, or quackery have by and large not been directed at the, um, the, the patient beyond just taking this kind of educational approach. Um, and, but you know what's what's striking when you look at the the past hundred years of um, of these efforts to um, educate the public, the um, the people who are involved in this process, the anti-quackery crusaders or quackbusters, as they've sometimes called themselves, kind of endlessly have this uh, faith in the ability of people to see the light. If we if they were just educated, if they uh, were just uh, sufficiently scientifically literate. Um, then they could make an informed decision. And I think um, in some ways the, the failure of that strategy and um, the failure of that or the inability to kind of reach that ultimate goal um, uh, in some ways encourages us to look at, look more deeply at, you know, what, what's going on in terms of the appeal. It's, a decision isn't made because uh, you don't, you know, people don't always choose alternative therapies because they uh, just don't know enough about them, or um, because uh, you know they are deluded. And so I think you know, kind of getting over the hump of that uh, inherent bias is, is a key part of the, the process in, ter- in terms of like speaking to people directly. All right. Well, we have to stop now. That's Dr. Eric Boyle, whom you hear speaking, the author of Quack Medicine: A History of Combating Health Fraud in 20th Century America. We've also been talking to Dr. Stephen Novella from Yale Medical School and Erica Janik from Wisconsin Public Radio. Send all of your emails to Josh Nalea. No, you can send them to me, <laughs> even though you're really mad. I know. Colin, C O L I N at WNPR.org. Or you could tweet, just tweet at Greg, WNPR Colin on Twitter. That's a good place. At WNPR Colin on Twitter. And remember, blame Greg or Josh. It was just my Hey, buddy, you tired from going out on the road with all the other snakes and the steam press and the snake oil? Yeah? I've got something that'll help you. Just relax. There you go.